Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening and thanks for your feedback. I love hearing from you, my listeners. Ed, thank you. I loved hearing about your six and a half hour Channel Journeys binge listening on your long road trip. That's pretty cool. Guys, this is Rob Spee, your host. I'm the founder of Channel Journeys and I'm on a quest for continuous channel learning and helping you gain channel excellence. And today we're talking with someone who can help you gain channel influence. She is an amazing woman, Janet Shines, CEO of her own channel consulting company, the CJ Group. She has a very impressive resume of channel executive roles at Home Depot, Verizon, and Motorola. And Janet has learned the art and the science of leveraging social media to become a channel influencer. She was named the Channel Influencer of the Year at the Channel Partners event. She has so many great tips for us. Get ready for a really fun conversation. Lots of great advice. Let's jump right into it. Here we go. Hey, Janet, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good morning. Fantastic. It's Friday. I'm talking to you. I'm living the dream. It's a great day. <laughs> living the dream. That was the, our theme when we lived in Southwest Florida. Every day was living the dream. Oh, I live in Florida. It's beautiful here. Every day is a beach day and I live very near the beach. So, you know, you have to stay motivated. So I'm glad to have this call with you this morning to keep me motivated today. Well, we'll do that. You know, don't rub it in. It's starting to get a little colder up here. So. Oh, I know. Left a keynote speech in Buffalo, New York in January. So super excited about that. Oh, that's kind of classic. Buffalo in January. That should be fun. Yeah, it should be great. I'm going to order some dogs and sleds shortly. So I'm sure Amazon <laughs> has those. They have everything. And one of those hats with a, with fur over the ears. <laughs> oh, oh, good idea. I'm putting it on the list now. <laughs> All right. Well, you are going to Buffalo, New York to speak, which probably is part of our theme today, which is about influencers and becoming an influencer. And this got kicked off because I met you out at the Channel Partner event where you were named Channel Influencer of the Year. Congratulations. Cue the balloons. Um, yes, thank <laughs> exactly. you very much. Um, it was definitely an honor, and I am just humbled by it. But it is a scientific, not an artistic award. And so what I mean by that is there's a science to being an influencer, a science that a lot of people in our industry are not effectively practicing. I'd say a lot. Probably the majority of us are not practicing. And and I'm really thrilled to be talking to you about it because I think you've obviously learned a lot of those tactics and tricks and, and the science of this. I think there's an art to it too. But we can chat about that. And why is it so difficult for many of us to use you know, all the new techniques of what it takes to be an influencer? It's, it's very different today. So let's dive into that and start out well, first, let me just kick off with, with what you're doing today, JS Group. So you've got your own business. You have transitioned back into consulting, and you are an influencer in the channel in that role, just as part of your company and what you're doing. That's, that's a great summary of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, so as you know, I was in corporate America for a while, but what most people forget is before I was in corporate America for a decade, I had my own consulting firm for a decade. That's how I got into corporate America in a leadership role. 
I sold my company actually and, uh, and was part of the Motorola symbol uh, acquisitions. So I am back in consulting because I think we're faced once again with a time of extreme change in the channel. So we've got, you know, according to Forrester and my buddy Jay McBain, we've got 40% of them aging out with no bench in place. We've got changing business models, everything as a service, you know, new entrants coming into the market, vendors switching their portfolios. It's chaos. And in chaos, there's opportunity. There always has been and there always will be for the channel. And of course, for my firm as a channel consultant. So we've put together a, a band of brothers and sisters, about 17 of us here at JS Group that all have deep channel, channel marketing, channel operations experience. And we're helping some of the biggest brands in the industry redefine how they look at their business. But we're also helping the partners working with them on how they redefine theirs. And this topic of influence comes up consistently from both parties. I'm sure it does because we've got to stay relevant. And it's probably even more important than ever that we are relevant in the channel to the customers, to our partners, as partners to the customers and to the vendors. It's a different world out there. So to you, what does it mean to be an influencer in today's environment? You know, it's funny. I used to have this very formal definition for it, right? So my initial definition was you were an influencer when someone would give you a microphone and let you talk. (laughs) And that was kind of in the past, right? In the past, if somebody said, hey, you know what? We'd like you to have the microphone and talk and everybody in the audience will listen to you. You were an influencer in the industry. And now, although you still want to do those things, I'm constantly at events as I know you are. And of course, you want to be out there and doing those things and, and, you know, talking to those audiences. The audience online now is 20, 50, 100,000 times the size of whatever audience might be in a room. Mm -hmm. And so now it's that when you take the microphone online, somebody actually listens and you're not just shooting it into the dark. And so, you know, when we really define influence, we say, if you were to post something or put something online or put content online or engage online, who's listening to you and what action are they taking? And that's what makes you an influencer. And what people sometimes forget is that comment of action. So I was with somebody two days ago and they said, Oh no, I have a, I have a couple thousand people that follow me. And the last thing I posted about my company, and we'll get into that. He said, you know, I got 28 likes and seven shares and we went and looked at it and 80% of his followers were people who worked for the same company he did. Yeah. And all of the likes and shares were from people who worked for the same company he did. Now, look, it's great that your internal team should also see you as an influencer, but they weren't earning any new business with that post. So, you know, it really comes down to a very complicated answer on what's an influencer. It's not just somebody who can take the mic. It's now somebody who can, quote unquote, take the mic online and people will take action because of. And that's the new, most important part of being an influencer. Are people taking action on what you're saying or doing? Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, you can look at not in our industry, right? If a famous celebrity says, oh, you know, selfie, I love this milkshake or I love this, you know, smoothie. I love this drink. I love this whatever. There will be lines to get that drink or or other thing. It's very interesting. And there's companies that are influencers too, although those are less likely than people being influencers. So a good example I'll give Starbucks is actually an influencer. Last year, they launched something called a unicorn drink, and it tasted a little bit like birthday cake and shame. And if you went to any Starbucks, it was hard to get, quote unquote, they sold out quickly. And what you saw in the garbage pail to me was fascinating. People went in, they ordered the unicorn drink and whatever drink they actually liked. 
They took a picture of themselves with the unicorn drink and posted it on social media. They threw the unicorn drink out. Very few people drank it because it was disgusting. (laughs) And they went on their merry way. So what did Starbucks manage to do? They managed to double their same day, same store sales with a a promotion of something that, by the way, started with one of their influencers saying, look at me, I got a unicorn shake. You should ask for a unicorn shake. So that's my silly example of what I mean by taking action, right? Because people went out and they did something. That's funny. Now, I watched the video that you took, uh, they took of you, you did an interview after you got the influencer award at Channel Partners. And you mentioned three things that make an influencer trust being known and being in the conversation. And I, I thought that was pretty interesting thinking about that. Do you, that was probably an off the cuff answer, or is that something that you've thought about more as key elements? I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to deep dive into that as we went through. Yeah. So this concept of trust is really important. So I speak with a lot of people in the industry who say, okay, so we hired an intern or our CMO said we're going to do social media or whatever their reason is, and they're going to send us prepackaged content and we're all going to shout it from our social media platforms because that means we're digital. We're, you know, we're, we're not digital transformation. We're digital normal mm-hmm. because that's my term. I keep telling people, if you still think there's a digital transformation, you're behind. <laughs> it's digital normal now. Um, and so I have to explain to them that no one is going to trust someone who works for a vendor or a partner or any company you can think of in the technology spectrum and is just consistently shouting their company's pre-canned information. All they're going to do is use that very convenient mute button that all platforms have and mute you so they don't have to hear from you anymore. So you're going to feel great, but it's kind of like there's an old saying, if you wink in the dark, you know what you're doing, but nobody else does. Um, so if you post social media content, everybody's muting you or tuning you out because they don't trust you. You seem to be somebody who's got an agenda they're going to tune you out. And so trust becomes this thing where people say, you know what? I trust that this person's going to tell the truth. I trust that they're smart. I trust that they know what they're doing. I trust that they give you know, a crud. And a lot of that trust comes from being purposeful about building what your brand platform is going to be as a person. As a person. And we can get into that. Yeah, as a person. And by the way, so few people get this. It is not about a company's brand. In fact, if your senior leaders are not on social media, are not out in the digital world, and by the way, I would also argue the physical world at events, etc. It is very hard for you to get a boost in this new digital normal for your company brand because people buy from people. And so this is really the conversations don't happen at a corporate level. The conversations happen at a person level. And, and there's millions of examples of that. Just think about the platform Glassdoor. So we used to look up companies and try to figure out what they were mm-hmm. about. Millennials, when they go for a job interview, whatever Glassdoor says, that's what they think of your company. You can give them any kind of pretty literature you want about your company. They're going to believe what's on Glassdoor. So did you control your brand or did somebody else control your brand? I'm I'm far from being a millennial, but that was the first thing I did when I was checking out OutSystems. I wanted to see what the reviews were. Really? And I'm glad you said that because it's funny. I use the term millennial and I would get criticized by Ashlyn, who runs our uh, our social media and digital practice, because she has us all retrained now that demographics are old school <laughs> and that culture graphics are the thing that matters. So in a world where gender is fluid, age is a number, the tribe that you're part of has nothing to do with your geography, right? We have people living all over the world that more identify with a different country's culture than the one they live in. This concept of culture graphics of what is truly your tribe versus how would a marketer define mm-hmm. you 
And you probably do share more attributes with a quote unquote traditional millennial than you would with a whatever generation you actually are because you're in the tech industry and you've been, you know, whether I love tech and I know you do, we've been kind of embracing it. So we are in fact, digital natives. That's part of our culture graphic. Well, thanks, Jen. I feel younger already. (laughs) You, you sound younger. I noticed it. I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, he sounds younger. (laughs) All of a sudden. All of a sudden, it's weird. So that concept of trust, though, comes into who do you trust, right? And you trust the people that are part of your cultural tribe. And that's a big, big part of having influence. Now, one example I'll use is I have a personal brand of not only being very passionate about the channel and sci-fi, because I do love sci-fi, but also about keeping women in technology. And so when I began on this process around being an influencer and having a brand and and I worked on on that, you know, pretty hard. What came to me was if I looked at my purpose and if I looked at my values and how I could differentiate myself and, you know, everything you would do for a branding exercise for a company, but for myself, I came with this platform that said one of my key purposes, reasons for being in the industry is I am very supportive of diversity in technology, particularly of women in technology, because we don't have enough women and diversity helps everybody's bottom line. And so because I was being true to my trust factor, people trusted that I would do what was best for mm-hmm. women in technology. I'd always demonstrated that. I started a Facebook group called Tech Worlds Half. And if anybody's listening and wants to join, just send me a request to Tech Worlds Half. We said, we want to be half of the tech world. We don't want more than our fair <laughs> share but we would like our fair share. And when I started it, I thought, hey, if a couple hundred women come on here and we have a good dialogue, this will be great. We have thousands and thousands of members. Hundreds and hundreds of women are being offered jobs on our platform now, are talking about their issues. It's invitation only. It's a safe zone. It's become a place where people can go and express their frustrations, or I'm going to leave this industry, which is what I'm trying to stop people from doing. And that comes down to that being known. So I began to get known um, for this concept of women in technology, this concept of Janet's a, an advocate, a defender, you know, a person who's trying to do what's right. And then being in the conversation is something I started myself two years ago by beginning my own Facebook group and saying, this is what I'm going to do. And that's really extended to almost a a tribe mentality at every event I'm at. There's a couple people there from Tech World's Half at every keynote people are booking. One or two of the people on the team that's booking it are a member of Tech World's Half. And so over time, because you build this tribe, your tribe helps you to become even more well-known and even more trusted and even more likely to be in the conversation. And so I think of it as concentric circles of trust, you're known, you're in the conversation, and then it keeps blowing up. You're more and more trusted, more and more known, and more and more able to be in the conversation. And so that's really been the key. Now, somebody asked me after that interview, well, shouldn't you have said number of connections? And I said, "Mm, no, because number of connections is something that makes you feel good. What really, it doesn't really have an impact. By the way, if you have five followers, probably it does. But whether you have 5,000 or 10,000, you know, using realistic numbers in this industry, that's not what matters. What matters is that you have trusted people that know you and they're going to bring you in the conversation. That's the, the thing that matters. That doesn't sound that hard. Why is it so difficult for many of us to follow that? Well, first of all, well, first of all, three quarters of the people in the tech industry, I believe, did not go to their own prom. And I say that because I think it's important, right? So I think we're an introverted industry. 
For the record, I did go. I did go to the prom. Congrats. Congrats. So that makes you part of the 25 elite group. But I do, yeah, I make that joke because people can always kind of resonate with that. Didn't go to the prom. It's really, I think we're a little bit of an industry that's introverted, more geared towards our, you know, device of choice versus our outward facing. And you see it when you go to events, people talk to the same exact people they know. Very few and far between are the people that are going, Hey, I don't, I don't know you. I haven't met you. Who are you? I'm one of those people. My husband often says, Janet is unfamiliar with the concept of stranger. (laughs) So I don't understand. So, but I think it's difficult because, you know, as an industry, we're maybe a little more introverted, but more importantly, we've had it beaten into our heads that the brand of our company is what matters. We're to promote the brand of our company. We're there to promote our company, our company's brand. We've done marketing forever that was about the company's brand. You know, take yourself back 10 or 12 years and think about if you had seen someone other than a realtor do a direct mail in our industry with their face on it, just talking about them. Oh, instant discomfort, right? Instant like, wait, what? why are they doing that? What was her or his face on that? And so we've kind of been brought up and trained that this is not good. But if you speak with folks who are more likely digital natives, who are much more comfortable in fact, in front of that device in a social manner, they actually can't understand that. Because unlike traditional entrance into technology where we communicated to get information, they get information to communicate. So, you know, you've seen the shift here in buyers, 81% of buyers go online before they see a salesperson. The same is true about how they decide who they're going to listen to, who they're going to trust, who they're going to engage with. It's all happening on this screen. And so you have this great divide in the tech industry of the folks who are comfortable with it and know that it's a way to get business and it's a way to get known and it's a way to get information. And the group of people that say, oh, that's stupid. My kids do that. Yeah. I'm an introvert for sure. I really have to push myself at the trade shows to go out and talk to different people. And I'm exhausted at the end of it. But the more I do it, the, the better I get at it. And that even starting this podcast was a was an effort for me. But I thought, okay, I got to just keep doing it because then practice brings a little bit more comfort to the situation. So I can, yeah, I can totally relate to that introvert side of the equation. And a lot of us are in the tech industry. I think that's part of why we, part of why most people got into the tech industry. They were that person in school who was more comfortable with the glowing rectangle than they were with the people. So in many ways, it's good for the industry because we certainly need as much talent as we can get. You know, I I had another thought too. Many of us work for companies who make it really easy to share company information on social networks. You know, they have this whole list of content that you can pull from and, and talk about the product, the company, customers, partners, whatever. But that's some people I see, that's all they do. And you never see anything else. After a while, you just turn off. Yes. Right. They're checking the box. Those are the same people who somebody like told them you have to eat three servings of vegetables a day and they will eat the three servings of vegetables a day. Right. They're people that are driven by this check the box are not necessarily going to be the people that are going to be influencers. And so, listen, I don't discount that your company offering you content is a good thing because it fills in the blanks of your personal brand and allows you to to talk about things. And so I think every company obviously should and does at this point have social media content, but that should only be about 20% at maximum of what you post. And so I always like to tell true, real stories. And so last year, my most popular post, I posted something and I'm I'm just doing one month here. In a one month view, I said, what was my most popular post? Well, my most popular post was a post that said, 
surely not everyone was kung fu fighting. And a couple of options of what, you know, because it was the anniversary of that song and it just struck me. And I was like, well, you know, surely not everybody was kung fu fighting. And, you know, maybe they were, you know, a couple other options of songs, right? And so it was very virally popular in our industry. You know, it was the right age, the right, you know, day, the right whatever. And it was my number one post that month on Twitter. But something interesting happened. There was a business post right next to it. And so when people went and looked at that post, they saw the other, right? And what happens is when people see you say something funny or interesting or your tribe who trusts you sees you say something smart, they'll look at the rest of your content. And so my number two post for that month was in fact a business post, a business content post that actually helped us to get some folks interested. So I tell that story because I hope that it kind of sets a boundary for people to say, you have to be a human online. You have to have a brand and things you believe in. You have to share valuable content from you as a person. And you shouting and screaming your company's stuff is not that valuable content. That content will get seen if you post other content that is valuable. And so it's it's a tough concept sometimes for people. And I use that Kung Fu fighting story, but generally my number one post is something educational, something that people can get their hands around, something that people can learn from, but it's not self-serving and it's not towards my company. This month, without a doubt, my biggest post is going to be I wrote an impassioned letter to the CFOs of companies asking them to stop just believing the direct team when the direct team said indirect was more expensive. Don't take the simple spreadsheet view and get the deeper data because they may be wrong. And it got posted on on BrainYard, uh, the NetSuite uh, site, and then got shared pretty virally now in social media. You know, tons of people who trust me and know me in the channel saying, yes, you know, God bless. Yes, <laughs> you know, preach on. And so, you know, I think that kind of a thing wasn't about JS Group Services. Right now, listen, you could draw a line back to JS Group Services and say, huh, well, if I'm a CFO, maybe I should talk to her because she must know something. I don't know. But it really was because I was frustrated on the 15th call of the week of a vendor saying, well, you know, we want to expand in direct, but we know it's more expensive than direct. What? Who told you that? Who told you that? The direct sales leader. Oh, okay. (laughs) What do you know? (laughs) What if they were wrong? What if they were wrong? And so, so, you know, I think that that concept of the content that you put out is one where people truly struggle. So if they struggle a little bit with their brand, I can get them through a brand exercise. That's an easy thing, right? We do that all the time. But actually routinely posting content and engaging with other influencers is where most people fall down. They have the best intentions and for a day or two, they'll post some stuff. Um, and then on day three, they just, they just run out of steam and then they don't post for three weeks and then they wonder yeah. why they're not doing better. I don't know if you see that or if you feel that difficulty. Oh, I feel it because that's me. I have a hard time keeping up with it. That and so maybe maybe that's any advice for that. How do you do? You just carve out like a set time a day. How do you find the time to be consistent? Because that's part of building trust, right? Is being consistent, being there. It is, and you know, part of building the trust and also being part of the dialogue is to others knowing that you're going to be there, right? So one of the things that that's kind of interesting is if somebody tags you or if somebody engages with your content and you don't answer them. So I see this all the time. A CEO of a company, for example, or a senior leader of a company will post something, undoubtedly something someone wrote for them in their communications team. 
or their marketing organization and people will respond to it, good or bad, and they won't respond. And then when there is a response, it's very generic. So I'll use an example. There was an ice cream company, a rather large one. I won't use brand names here. The ice cream company had a whole bunch of people saying, you know, your new flavor, you know, locale, whatever, tastes like cardboard, tastes like this, tastes like that. Well, they only answered the people that said, ooh, the new flavor, love it, you know, on a diet. Ooh, good. We're on a diet too. But they never answered any of the negative people. And then a small local competitor in Vermont came out with this ice cream. And I can't remember the name of it, but the stuff just tasted horrible. But it was very low calorie and very healthy for you. And what one person posted on their site saying, you know, hey, you know, this stuff does not taste very good. And they were like, wow, you know, we just tasted it too. And we know we're still working on it. What do you think? What, what would you have done? You know, we're, we're sorry you don't like it. Let me send you a coupon for this other flavor. See if you like it. Head back in the store. Right. You know, they started having fun with people, right? No licking the ice cream because, you know, that was a big thing then. And they were so human that their sales went up astronomically. And all of a sudden, a lot of people did like it, right? Because there's those detractors who are never going to like anything that's diet because they think it should taste exactly like the 5,000 calorie scoop of ice cream. But they started to get a lot of supporters and their sales grew unbelievably. I'm making their valuation, I think, in the 50 or $60 million range within about a year. And they will tell you it is all down to their ability to engage the crowd and be trustworthy and be there. And so I use that example because when I tell people, hey, you have to engage online, you have to engage regularly online, you have to engage as you online, I sometimes get some head nodding. And then a couple of days later, of course, nobody is doing it anymore. They posted, you know, they screamed a couple of things about their company. And when we sit down and we follow back up on it, we ask, what's your content plan? So we know your personal brand, you know, your personal platform should be 60 to 80% of your posts. I'm not saying you have to post pictures of your kids. I'm not saying that, right? But what are your personal beliefs, your values, the things you find interesting in the industry? And then, you know, you shout yeah. your 20% of your stuff about your company. They, the first couple of days do great. Again, they fall off. And when I ask to see their content plan, yeah. there's blank stares, right? There's no content plan. Now I make a content plan for a two week period. Everything is written out. You can use a platform like Hootsuite or others to post those. That does not forgive you from engaging with the crowd because if you don't answer people, then right, your posts begin to not be uh, very interesting. But I at least have the content going out. And then I basically do social media during my coffee, right? When I'm kind of eating a little lunch, I you know give myself a social media break. And then towards the end of the day, I give myself another. Now, the other option is you can have someone play you online. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I've heard people say, what? Have someone play me online, write my content, engage with my followers? Like, and I'll say to them, really? Let's go through this. Let's go through the things that you actually already outsource. And when you start to talk about some of the things people outsource, they begin to go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not that bad, is it? No, it's not. If you as a senior leader don't have the time, the desire, the effort, the whatever, then you should have someone do it for you and you should have oversight and management, review your and improve your content, review and improve your persona, but you can outsource it. And we have a number of companies that have outsourced that to us. And you know what? We, it's fascinating and it works. Can you even outsource the, the, the interaction, the comments that, you know, you talked about, you've got to respond, but you could have someone trained to be your persona to do that. To ghost for you. Yup. And, and by the way, I know there are people that will go, oh, that's awful. Really? In a world of AI, in a world of bots, in a world of, you know, RPA becoming the most important 
element in the industry. Are we really thinking that a human can't ghost for you? I, I find that hard to believe since machines are already ghosting for a lot of things. And so, you know, what I find is this is important. This is as important as anything else you might do. For example, you're supposed to secure your website, you're supposed to secure your data, and you're supposed to have people that are constantly looking and monitoring and making sure that you don't have an issue, right? Do you feel as a business owner that you should do that too? Yeah. There's a million examples where someone has their hands on something that's very important to your business, your security. They have the ability to put patches in, to get past your firewall, to do the things that they need to do to protect you. If a person is going to play you, be your ghost online, and that they have the responsibility to connect with your audience, to make sure that people are hearing you, to protect the jobs of the hundreds or thousands of people or five people that work for you because you stay hashtag relevant versus hashtag irrelevant. Is that wrong to outsource that? Because I don't think it is as a leader. I think part of being a leader is knowing what you can and can't do. Yeah. I think I could do it, but I would have to go in and and occasionally see what they're writing and see who's responding. I'd want to know. And Oh, Don't get me wrong. They approve all their content. Yeah. So all content is approved, posted content. And then the first 30 days, typically, there's a lot of back and forth on tone and voice and who do you want to respond to and who don't you want to respond to. But over time, that person actually gets, you know, better at knowing who to respond to than you do. And, you know, the good news is you don't take extreme positions. That's not a good idea. And so it's actually a great way to do it. Now, I have a fair amount of leaders who have said, no, I'm going to do it myself. And they do it and they do it well. But if you can't do it and you can't do it well, you're putting your company at peril. If the top people in your company or the people who are customer facing in your company can't do this well, you're putting your company at peril. And it would be as bad as not having a website or not having salespeople or not having marketing materials. So that to me is always the conversation with people is to say, look, one way or the other, either if you have somebody internally who'll do it, you'll do it, you outsource it, one way or the other, it has to happen. It's not an option. You mentioned not taking extreme positions, which made me wonder, what's your thought? You know, some people post political comments, which is, I think, a bad idea. (laughs) I don't think you want to go that personal when you're trying to build up your business because you know you're going to turn off half your audience. What's your thought on that? That's right. And you know what? You know, the rules don't change. And it's interesting because you see this with cyberbullying too, and it's disgusting. So the rules don't change from polite society just because you're online. This is what I typically say. So being, you know, raised by a, a kind of strict set of parents, they always said you don't discuss politics, religion, or money at the dinner table, right? Or at any table. And that rule has really not changed. Just because you're in a different setting. And so what people kind of forget that. And so I always tell people, look, take the gloves off. This isn't a boxing match. You need to be a little less opinionated about things that are polarizing. Now, that doesn't mean you become white milk toast and, you know, that you're, oh, yeah, great. Thank you. Awesome. Because no one likes that either. But you can't get involved in those dialogues. And there's so many dialogues that you can have that ignoring those and you not posting those is more than fine. Because again, in any given moment, there's millions of pieces of content being posted. You don't have to respond or react to those things. There's much better things to respond to. And it it kind of segues into something interesting. So I have watched certain people in the industry 
decide to take very extreme positions. And sometimes that initial post will get more attention, right, than other posts and they begin to feel good about it. But if you actually pull your reputation score 30 days after that, your reputation score is going down. And so, you know, this becomes an issue. And so when I talk to leaders, particularly sales leaders, you know, CEOs, COOs, my favorite, the chief revenue officers, they all are concerned about what their people are going to say online. And so farther down in the troops, we've all seen these trainings come out about social media and you have to acknowledge that you work for the company, which is great, right? In your profile, that's only right right? You're basically quote unquote paid advertising. If you're talking about your company, and you work there, but people then take it to an extreme too. So they cease to have any opinion Mm -hmm. and that's also dangerous. So you can have opinions about things. It just, again, shouldn't be things that are highly polarizing. And so I had this conversation last week with a, a senior leader and he was quite frankly, not as supportive, went along with his CMO's desire for them to become digitally active and to take my more scientific influencer approach. Of course, a fair amount of art in being someone who's charming or witty or or whatever online. The CEO was very surprised to find out that three months into the program, their website had been worth a certain amount of money. And three months into the program, their website was worth triple that. Now, why? Because people started looking at the website because their people that work for them seemed interesting, seemed like they had something to say. That company might be somebody I want to work with. And that's how your website value goes up. So this particular owner was very interested in this dialogue because in a world of mergers and acquisitions, if you're looking to at some point sell or gain investors in a new world, PE firms look at your website value. And many of the channel partners and even smaller vendors, website values are $75,000 or $100,000. That doesn't help your valuation very much. But if you can get your website to be worth a million dollars, all of a sudden your, your evaluation gets help, particularly as a smaller partner. And so when I started showing real statistics like that, to people. That's where I go with the science, right? It changes the conversation. It changes the dialogue. It's away from a feel good. How many influencers do I have? And a, wait a minute, you're saying this results in business or valuation? Huh, a little more interested. And that, that becomes a fascinating conversation. Very interesting. So getting kind of to the, the analytics of this for our channel listeners, channel chiefs, channel managers, channel partners, how do we measure our our digital influence? How do you measure yours? And so I will tell you with, you know, all kidding aside, of course, followers matter. So when we look at it, we typically look at connections, connections to influencers, and that's typically a ratio, right? So, you know, do you have more, a lot of connections, but no connections to influencers? That's a negative ratio. And then we look at your website value. We look at your reputation score and we look at your and it's hard to put that in a podcast without showing a lot of these numbers, but we basically look on your platforms of choice and where your reds and your greens are. So, and we put that together and it's a goal, right? The goal is, Hey, if we're here, how do we get to there? And if you do the math, right, you can do very well. Now that's the easy answer. Jay McBain has a very, from Forrester has a very complicated, but awesome answer. He goes out every year and he studies every piece of influence that people have, and he gives them points for it. So how often do they speak in an event? 
their social media, their followers, their influencers? Uh, how often were they quoted in an article? How often was their content online viewed? How, and he really goes into it in a big kind of way. And then he ranks the influencers. And so it was really interesting because I wasn't on the list a few years ago. People knew who I was. Don't get me wrong. I was, at the time, I was uh, the Verizon channel chief. So people know who you are when you're in that big of a role. But he had shared the statistics with me. And I said, huh, all right. So I want to get more points in that and worked with Ashlyn. And at the time, I was not running my company. I was still in corporate America, uh, but I worked with her and you know, invested personally in my personal brand. Didn't expect a company to do that. And said, I would like to win this thing. And so that year I came in number two, but here was the fascinating statistic. The person who came in number one that next year actually traveled 245 nights, I believe it was. And I traveled 41 nights. I like your method. I like my method better. So my math was down to the online influence and the other influencers math was down to the, and this was three years ago when I really started this journey, was down to how many events could they speak at? But that's an exhausting proposition. And so the funniest thing, I think, as a, as a part of that, as we talk about measurement, one of the things that we take into a lot of consideration is for the biggest events, for the biggest things that are happening, what's your influence score there? And so uh, at RSA last year, I was one of the top 10 influencers at the RSA event. I was not at the RSA event. You were sipping coffee on the beach. Wasn't there. Because quite frankly, it's easier to follow an event hashtag when you're not there and you have someone helping. So you can be part of a relevant conversation now. That point is you can be part of a relevant conversation now, even if you're not in the room. And so that's pretty amazing. And so when you look at how many events people went to because they quote unquote had to be seen there and how many events they can actually cut out if they have a good digital strategy, the money that they save just on travel alone can pay for them to have a social media help person, outsource, whatever. A couple trips, cut them. Why do you think this is so important for individuals? The channel folks who are listening, you know, obviously there's a benefit for the company's valuation, but your own personal valuation. Well, um, what we've seen is super connectors, and I can't take credit for that term. That's a Forrester term. Super connectors, those people who have an influence score that's higher, right, on the top 10%, they earn more. So they actually earn 40% more than people that are not connectors and 21% more than people who are just regular connectors. But more importantly, it comes down to how do you shift a crowd who's being overwhelmed day in and day out? Think about the average channel chief. Their average partner may have 20 vendor relationships, 30 vendor relationships. How do they stand out from the crowd, not with that one salesperson manager, sorry, that one sales manager that they deal with every day. How do they stand out with the crowd, with the marketing teams, the salespeople, the people that are in the trenches? Well, you stand out because you have a brand and a reputation and people begin listening to you. They subscribe to you. They hear you. They go, oh yeah. And if you change jobs, and I'm going to use John Delosier from 8x8 as my example here. John Delosier was at CenturyLink. John is definitely a super connector. John went to 8x8. Every partner that had worked with him said, oh yeah, of course we're going to work with John. We trust him, right? He's well-known and we like him being in the conversation. Back to that, how you know you're an influencer, right? And so that's why it's so important. And the final thing I would say is marketing people tend to be more active in these platforms. And 
traditionally for a channel chief. They went and talked to the sales organization. The marketing organization was pulled in if there were MDF requests or others. And in the new world, marketing is much more important than sales. Sorry to all the salespeople out there, but marketing is where it's at when 81% of your buyers, even in enterprise, are looking online first. Marketing is where it's at. Marketing is the tip of the spear now. It's no longer arts and crafts. It's the science and the data of how your company succeeds. And so those marketers, that's where they get their information. That's where they make their connections. And since the vast majority of channel programs, which is a mistake, by the way, don't have a marketing certification, the vast majority of channel programs don't have a marketing contact. So the best way for those channel chiefs to get the marketing contact excited is to connect with them online. That's a great answer, Janet, just because the the internal influence that you need to is so critical. And people might not even make that leap from your kind of social influence in the market and how that translates to your internal influence. That's right. And if I think of a channel partner as another example, the channel partner average customer is changing very rapidly, was a baby boomer or Gen Xer is quickly becoming a millennial. I know I shouldn't talk demographics, but in this one, it's important. And that that person doesn't know or trust them. And where do they go for information that they know and trust? They go online. And so if they Google you, and, you know, think of this. If someone Googles you, Twitter will pull up your last three posts. If your last post was in 2015, you come off as not real relevant. So you're basically taking a sticky yeah. note, shoving it on your head that says hashtag irrelevant. That's how they see it. And by the way, they Google everyone before they meet with them. This is a habit that digital natives have. They don't trust what you said or your bio said or your anything else said. They Google you. And they trust what Google or some or Glassdoor or someone says about you. And so if you're not there, this buyer, as they change and step down, if you're a partner, your buyers may very well go with someone who's more socially well-known than you. That's the risk. Jen, I feel like I could talk for another hour on this topic. Super interesting and fun conversation, but we are almost out of time. And I always like to get to know the person I'm interviewing a little bit better too, and help my audience get to know you because this is about influence and relationship and trust and getting to know you is kind of part of that. So you mentioned that you love sci-fi. You're a sci-fi addict. I heard that you love ice cream. You lo- Do you have a favorite You have a favorite ice cream flavor? I do love ice cream. Chocolate chip mint. I love them all. So everyone sounds good. How about, uh, are you an adventurous person? Do you, do you like going out and doing any type of adventure, adventurous travel or anything like that? I am adventurous in weird ways. So I feel at my age, at least going to Comic-Con is adventurous. And And so I do those kind of things routinely. Going to the comic book store on a Saturday, by the way, when there's a new Star Wars release is also quite adventurous because it's packed and a little bit of a competition sport. But I also spend, you mentioned earlier, a lot of time at the beach. So I do like to do beach-related activities and love the water. So that's my thing. Awesome. Now, do you go to the extreme and like dress up like Princess Leia and go to these events? So not Princess Leia, but absolutely. I dress up. Cosplay is part of the experience. It's part of kind of letting go of reality. And so, yes, absolutely. My most uh, current Comic-Con outfit was Dr. Jean Grey from X-Men. Okay. Do you have a photo? Not that I'm going to share, no. Dang. (laughs) Dang. Because, you know, when I promote the podcast, I always have the serious photo and then the fun photo. I was thinking, maybe I can... I will send you a fun photo. I have a photo of me playing with a lightsaber that's quite entertaining. So I will send that one because... I can admit that I had lightsabers and we regularly have lightsaber battles. I'm that kind of geek. 
<laughs> I just watched a really fun documentary on the making of Star Wars. It was pretty fascinating. You, you may have seen it. I did. It was super fascinating. And I'll tell you what, it's now that Disney kind of has the property and they're making the Star Wars Hotel and, you know, all these other things. I, I think you're going to see a whole new generation of Star Wars lovers. And I, I just think it's fascinating and fun to watch. It is. All right. Great, Janet. Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. I found it super helpful. Now I've got to go out and create my content calendar for my social consistency because I'm awful at it. There you go. Get it done. Get it done. Make it happen. Any final tips for the audience? I think just three final tips. So one is get in a mindset where this is important, right? Where I know it can be uncomfortable, feel like something somebody else does and you don't, but get in a mindset where you're comfortable with the thought of being a personality online. Two, have some fun with it. You know, it doesn't have to be so heavy handed. It can be something you have fun with. And three, anything you don't plan to do, you fail to do. So have a plan, just execute on the plan and you'll be successful. That's awesome, Janet. Well, this has been a lot of fun and I'm going to go have some fun with social media. Thanks again. And I look forward to seeing you in the channel. I look forward to seeing you too. See you, buddy. Wow, guys, that was so much fun. I did not want to end that interview. As you heard, building your brand and gaining influence, it's not really rocket science, but it does take dedication and consistency to build trust and become known in the channel. But it can bring you a huge return on a relatively small investment of your time. So many great tips from Janet. Be sure to visit my website, channeljourneys.com backslash CJ38. That'll take you straight to this episode. You'll find all the show notes and a summary of Janet's tips and some links as well. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to Channel Journeys and check out my free course on how to build a SaaS channel. That's on the homepage. I will see you again in two weeks when I'll be talking about the influencer channel, sometimes called the shadow channel, with the chief marketing officer of Impartner. That's going to be a great episode. I'll see you then. And until then, have a great channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.